Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we have been going down the AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of, purportedly, the top 25 scores in American cinema history. And we are now down to number five on the list. Which means that in this episode, we'll be talking about Nino Rota's score for the 1972 king of mob movies, The Godfather. The Godfather was written by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola, based on Puzo's novel, It was produced by Albert S. Ruddy, and it was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. John, for the young people out there, tell us about (laughs) The Godfather. Yeah, everybody above a certain age, I assume, has seen it. But uh, hey, if you haven't, it's a good movie. You should check it out. It is a beautifully photographed three-hour epic about the Corleone family, which has to function both as a powerful organized crime syndicate and as a complex family with complex family dynamics. It stars Marlon Brando as the boss, the godfather himself, Don Vito Corleone, Robert Duvall as his advisor, his consigliere, Tom Hagen, and as his four children, James Caan as the hot-headed Sonny, John Cazale as the childlike Fredo, Talia Shire as luckless daughter Connie, and of course Al Pacino as the good son, the war hero, the one who went straight and will definitely never ever be involved in crime, Michael Corleone. It also stars Diane Keaton as Michael's girlfriend, Kay, and frankly, it also stars a whole bunch of other people because there are a lot of characters in this movie. Yeah, a lot of stuff happens in the movie. Uh, Basically, uh, Vito Corleone is a little old-fashioned. He doesn't want to get involved in the drug trade. The other mafia families in New York try to pressure him into it. When he refuses, they try to get him out of the way, which precipitates a violent and bloody gang war, which draws even the good son, Michael, into the depths of the family business. It's also worth mentioning that uh, a couple years later, they made a part two to this movie, which they called The Godfather Part Two. And Nino Rota also wrote the score to that. And so we might uh, mention that a little bit as well. Not too much, maybe a little. Good enough? Good enough. Hey, so Andy, we said at the end of our last episode when we were preparing to do this one that uh, a lot of people have seen The Godfather. Uh I think a lot of people like this movie, too. Yeah, I think it's like one of the most popular movies of all time. I think it's not only one of the most popular, it's often cited as one of the greatest movies of all time. If somebody had asked me, though, I wouldn't have guessed that you are particularly a Godfather guy. Would you say you're a Godfather guy? I guess I know what you're getting at. I have a relationship to this movie where I feel like, oh, I like it. It's a great movie. But I'm not sure I'm on the team because it does seem to have a team sometimes. It's got a team. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie. Mm -hmm. It's a rich and rewarding movie. Sure. It is engaging. You can start almost anywhere and you flip the channel and The Godfather's on halfway through. And I often have. And you think, I'll watch the rest of this. Yeah. My wife Becky and I, we often joke that we have this superpower that whenever we're staying in a hotel, The Godfather turns up on TV somewhere. 
and we always sit and watch it. It just has that quality of seeming worthwhile. Yeah, well, it is worthwhile. It has a texture of not seeming like it's playing some game and you have to decide, oh, mm-hmm. do I want to let it play its game with me? It feels very sincere in a way that is inviting at any time. Yeah. That's how it feels to me. It's interesting you mentioned that it has this sincerity to it, which is undoubtedly true. It feels totally composed and polished, self-possessed, knows exactly what it is, and has complete self-confidence that just by showing you what it is, you're going to go along. And you do, as we just said. So I have two questions about that. I want you to articulate a little bit more what you were hinting at when you said you're not fully on the, you know, on the starting team here for this. Uh, Well, I just feel like, you know, the culture has embraced this movie in a way that gives you the impression the movie uh, might be more sort of pro-mafia than I think it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, this movie's about the mafia? They don't use that word. I, I didn't know. That, that word didn't appear in the movie, so I didn't know. They don't use that word. Yeah. It has a reputation and it has a fandom built around a romanticization of what goes on in it that I don't really think is the message of the movie, isn't really the flavor of the movie. Absolutely not. I mean, the movie is so well done, so well acted that, you know, the main characters, the characters we spend all our time with, all of their motivations seem totally sympathetic to us. It is seductive because all of those motivations are murderous and, you know, they're bad guys. But, uh, yeah, the movie absolutely convinces you that it's the right way to be. And uh. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I think the movie is fairly tragic. Yeah. I think the second one is even more explicit about being tragic that, like, this is not, this is not a good trajectory for any of these characters. I agree. I don't think the movie is really meaning to lionize them. But, yeah, it does kind of wind up being received that way. You know, people's car horns play the theme that we're going to talk about. <laughs> I don't think that that means what that theme is supposed to mean. (laughs) I guess it depends what car it is. Okay, but the other question I wanted to ask you when we were talking about this movie's sincerity and confidence Mm -hmm. is how does the music, because we're here to talk about the music for this movie, right? Mm -hmm. How is that sincerity and confidence, what's its relationship with the music? Of course, I plan to talk about that. Uh, (laughs) Oh, good. I just feel like I was talking for a while. Why don't you answer your own question? All right, I'll answer my own question. There's great music in this movie. And as has already been discussed, it's a great movie. In no way would I ever suggest that this is not a great movie. Oh my God, what are you about to say? Not that. Uh, No, no, great. Everything is great. It adds up to being totally great. Love it. Love it. Great. We're here to talk about the score and put it on a list of scores. Uh And this is just about the least musical movie I feel like we've talked about. So much action, so much important stuff that we see, so much stuff that we watch and feel this sincerity and confidence from plays without music. You know, we talked about the score to Chinatown and we noted how little music there was in that movie. That's a two hour and 10 minute movie Chinatown is. And there's just about, you know, a little less than half an hour of score. This movie is almost an hour longer than Chinatown. It's nearly three hours, and there's just about the same amount of music in it. A little bit more. There's a little bit more than half an hour of score in this movie. Man, that is a low, low percentage. And you feel it. I felt it this time watching it. I felt how little the movie was relying on the music to get done what it wanted to get done. That's what I have to say, which again, in no way takes away from it all adding up to being super great. But 
it was noteworthy, and we're here to talk about the score, so that's what I wanted to see what your reaction to was. Yeah, well, it's, you know, there's no denying the numerical facts of what you're saying, that there is a very low ratio of original score to running time. Yeah. There is, it's worth mentioning, a lot of other music yeah. in the movie. I mean, there's, a, you know, what did you, 35 minutes or something of Nino Rota music, but then there's another 25, 30 minutes. That's about right. Of source music or soundtrack music, as you called it once, or, you know, music that is not part of the Rota score, but that evokes the period or the place or the culture sure. in one way or another. Music that was either pre-existing, you know, songs that you hear playing on radios and whatnot, and then there's a lot of source music that we hear being played by wedding bands, both in America and in Italy, Uh, and a lot of that music was actually composed originally for this movie, but not by Nino Rota. Right, by the director's father, Carmine Coppola. Carmine Coppola, Francis Ford's father, who was a musician and a composer and a conductor, He had a long career on Broadway as well as in Hollywood. Because in the second movie, they were co-credited as composers, right? Or at least they were co-nominated. That's right. And one for part two. Right. So you said this is one of the least musical movies we've seen. But in another sense, it is one of the most musical movies we've seen in that (laughs) it is about a culture with an existing musical culture that is a crucial Uh part of how the setting and even the feelings, the meanings of these lives are portrayed. You know, Hmm. the first 25 minutes of the movie, something like that, is this wedding, expositional wedding scene. There's music playing the whole time and a series of performances Mm -hmm. and they take time with each one to show us what these performances mean to these people and how the sound of it unites them and then it's playing in the background. Am I not taking the picture without Michael? There's like a quick cutaway shot to a woman singing opera at one point. Yeah. The point of which is, this goes on in this world. This music is these people's lives. And that continues throughout the movie. Whenever this source music arises, it is significant, I think, in a way that it probably hasn't... I can't think of another movie we've seen where music has been a part of the lives in that way. That's a very good point. And great care was obviously taken in preparing all this music and getting it to be authentic. And it's absolutely praiseworthy, all of this music. Totally right. It contributes to your sense of the place and the traditions, but it's not musical in a storytelling way. I mean, it's sort of like set dressing. It's supremely accomplished set dressing because this is where we place our scene amongst all of these kinds of musical acts and traditions and therefore, you know, the same way that we would make the costumes look authentic and make them out of the real materials and you want to take care to make everything really representative. This music is part of the set, it's part of the surroundings and it comes up beautifully, but uh, it's not not a score. (laughs) Well, you're trying to draw a line between these two things, and I think that some amount of blurring of the line inevitably goes on in the viewer's mind. Yeah, you're right. But also there's some deliberate blurring that goes on in the way the score is introduced into the movie and the sort of the sounds that you hear in the score. At the end of the sequence, the final gesture of this long opening wedding sequence is Don Carleon comes out and dances with his daughter whose wedding day it is. The wedding band starts up playing this uh, melancholy waltz for the father and the daughter to dance at the wedding, and it is the Godfather waltz. It is the theme of the movie, and this Mm -hmm. is the first 
piece of Rhoda scoring in the movie is a piece of source music. But it's sort of a piece of source music that gestures to a different perspective that the score is going to have. Yeah. You kind of sense as they're dancing to it that this music might be a little more knowing, might go a little deeper. You get a sense kind of of the musical camera pulling back when that music kicks in, don't you? I like that, the musical camera pulling back. Yeah, absolutely. You're right, it has that effect. And you're also right that I should be you know, less hard-headed about this bright line distinction I keep wanting to make between score and source. And you know, actually, Nino Rota is really the guy to talk about in relation to blurring that distinction. I think of Nino Rota as having had this genius for being able to cast his tunes into the sounds of different kinds of music. Uh Uh-huh. You know, a restaurant ensemble. We were talking about this. In Laura, you hear the restaurant band playing the tune. We were talking in High Noon. You hear, you know, everyone is playing the High Noon song. But I feel like Nino Rota just had a more profound sense of how to do that. How to make a piece of scoring material serve through different musical voices, through different ensembles and different uh, traditions. So in this movie, you hear the wedding band play this theme. You, of course, also hear the full orchestra play it. You hear traditional instruments play it. In part two, you ultimately hear it sung as though it's an Italian folk song with some lyrics. It just feels to me like that's the Nino Rota thing, to have the same piece of music wear a bunch of different hats so that he can come at the story from different angles. You know, like in a Rota score, you'll hear like happy, funny circus music. And then the same theme (laughs) is like a deeply sad, you know, string ensemble playing it. And you get this effect of different perspectives, different types of irony or sympathy or whatever, all out of the same material. Yeah, happy, funny circus music. Let's back up just a little bit and talk about Nino Rota's background. So he is an Italian guy, and his most notable filmmaking collaboration is that he wrote the music for pretty much all of Federico Fellini's movies. Right. So Rota's first collaboration with Fellini was a 1952 movie called Lo Sheiko Bianco. So here's some happy circus music he wrote for that movie. very naturally to him to write this kind of carnival-sounding, dancey, bouncy, Italianish tunes. Fellini's, you know, perhaps best-known movie, Eight and a Half. Here's some more sort of bouncy, Italian, circusy-sounding music that he wrote for Eight and a Half. Right, but to be clear, it sounds like circus music, but that's not all it's doing. Implicit in his using this style is some kind of poignancy or nostalgic. Mm -hmm. There's a distance that he knows about. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's in quotes, but it's using the associations as part of what he as composer is doing. Yeah, you're right. It's deceptively simple. Yeah. Music. It sounds like, you know, popular tunes played by kind of popular music ensembles. And yeah, there's hidden complexity to it. Uh, interesting you mentioned nostalgia, though, because uh, here I wanted to play some happy, bouncy Italian carnival ish sounding music that he wrote for uh, another movie, Fortunella, in 58.
Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? This movie is pretty hard to see in America. It is not well distributed. I don't think it was ever actually distributed in America. And it's still, I don't think you can get it on DVD. I just wanted to bring it up that, uh, yeah, that tune from this uh, movie, what is it, 14 years earlier, Fortinella, he reuses it as the love theme, essentially, for The Godfather. You you know, that was the main title from Fortinella. Mm -hmm. But here is a sad moment from uh, Leighton Fortinella. Just to tie it into what I was saying about Rocha's technique, I think that he's unparalleled at being able to do this in a really convincing way where the material transforms and it makes the storytelling feel three-dimensional. Neither of these feels like they're the essential form of this theme. They're both you know, accessible from this theme. But anyway, the one that we just heard sounds pretty similar to the Godfather arrangement, actually. Yeah, he uh, he lifted it from himself, which once it was discovered, because as you said, this movie wasn't really available in America, so it kind of flew under the radar for a while. But once it was discovered that this major theme from the movie was a retread, it disqualified Rhoda for the Academy Award for score for the movie. He was not eligible in 1972. He was nominated, and then the nomination was rescinded after this came out. Yeah, exactly. Drama. The nomination was rescinded, which he was upset about. But, you know, the requirement of the Oscar for score is that it is originally composed for the movie in question. I mean, it's not like he stole something that belonged to someone else. Self-borrowing, the difference between self-borrowing and self-resemblance is already, you know, like sometimes people just write things that kind of sound the same as each other. Mm -hmm. Now, this one is very explicit. We have actually a quote here where he said that he made his friends pick which of his old themes he should use. This is a quote from Rota. I remained a little perplexed thinking that it would have been superfluous to invent something new, so I selected four or five themes I had composed for other films of southern Italian flavor and embarked, as usual, upon inflicting my friends with a choice of their own about the most suitable of those themes. Finally, we concluded that a theme composed some 15 years earlier had the right potential. It was a theme originally conceived as a sprightly, teasing little march. I I don't know, the idea of this party game of, like, which of these tunes I've got sitting around do you think uh, would go with this? That in itself is a form of creative choice. Like, uh, I don't know, this is how he chose to do it. And there's really no denying that it has worked very well. (laughs) I mean, people like that theme. Well, it's a great theme. And of course, who can say anything but that it works marvelously? Please let me be clear that I'm not suggesting anything of the sort. Of course it's perfect. Of course it works attractively. Let's talk about what it does in this movie. Because I think some people think they think The Godfather, and then they think of someone's car horn playing that, (laughs) or they think of like someone in the subway playing that. And the actual use and meaning of that theme is more interesting than just, you know, The Godfather. It has a very particular role in laying out the dramaturgy of this movie. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a little surprising if you haven't been thinking about it specifically to realize that you don't hear that music at all until we get to Sicily. And then you don't hear it again after we get back from Sicily. It is heavily associated with, as you said, the Southern Italian place and tradition, kind of contrasting that with how the Italian traditions wind up taking hold in America. 
It's an interesting juncture in the movie where, you know, Michael, the good son, has volunteered himself to do this bloody act of revenge and then disappear, and now he's no longer the good war hero son. It's a turning point in his character. And at that point in the story, there's a crossfade to this landscape we haven't seen before and this other world of the brown grass of Sicily. Uh, it just is like a shot of something very different in the middle of the movie. And we suddenly hear this new sound. And he plays it in a bunch of versions. He's got the version with the strings. Yes. He's got a version with a mandolin. That's the one that you hear on the wedding night. It almost sounds a little bit saucy in that moment when Michael Apollonia are kissing. It sounds a little bit like it's being played outside by, you know, just the people hanging around the wedding party. So like we were saying, this theme, it's really just for this episode. I'm not sure we've seen that before, where there's a section of a movie that has its own theme. Yeah, well, like you said, I think he was sensitive to the fact that this is kind of a little self-contained bubble in the middle of this story. Yeah, and it's about Michael reaching to have this other life that doesn't work out for him. Yeah, I think that effect that it's a self-contained bubble is something that the music is creating. Yeah. Like, I think the reason you feel such a significant distance between this part of the story and the New York part of the story is because this music is there bracketing it. But anyway, I think it's notable that for the rest of the movie, he composed new material. And for this one section, he went looking to find something that already existed, which is sort of a different impulse. He says in that quote, it seemed to me that it would be superfluous to write something new, which is odd. Uh, I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that this music is supposed to feel found. It's supposed to feel like (laughs) something that's always been there. And so he wanted to approach it that way. I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch. Or listen, maybe, you know, maybe he just felt like uh, he had stuff that could cover it. I certainly feel that way a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) If I get asked for something and I'm like, I've done something that could pass for that. All right. So when he and his friends went back to listen to old tunes, what do you think they were listening for? Like, what do you think it is about this tune that fulfills this need? I think maybe the way that this phrase, you can kind of boil it down to these little two-note gestures that each of them is a little sigh in and of itself. If I put a Y in something when I'm humming, it really sounds like a sigh, right? But each of those little two-note gestures has a tension and a release to it and a sigh, and it sounds... Uh, plaintive and romantic and yearning. There's a romantic uh, purity to it. Yeah, that purity. Because, you know, plaintive and sighing could describe almost all of the themes in this movie. But this one definitely feels more pure. It feels like this is the origin. Mm. You know, whatever that sigh is that's through all of the music, here's where it was still sweet and it could sing out lyrically in the old country. And it does feel like something that's always been there. Yeah. This whole sequence is full of things that sound just so like they've always been there. And then they really actually inform what he did throughout the rest of this score. The the source music in this sequence really offers a lot to Rhoda to take out of it. Mm-hmm. As being the old country, as being the roots, the source literally. The source literally, yeah. So like, for example, the wedding bands that we hear in Sicily... <laughs> 
And again, this is music not written by Rhoda, but I think this source music here does a wonderful job of kind of showing you these traditional Italian sounds and where the things that we've heard already come from. It kind of establishes the importance of this solo trumpet texture. solo trumpet in the town band as part of this archetypically Italian sounding traditional thing is I think really resonant with the trumpet that we hear in the score which is the first thing that you hear in the movie over the title. I think that Rota was very sensitive to the interconnections between different modes and traditions. And, you know, each thing he does kind of can point in a bunch of different directions. It connects dots in the movie. Mm. And part of that depth I talked about in the storytelling, in the way it's constructed, I think comes from an ability to think about deep themes through music. I love that trumpet so much. I mean, I love that tune. As much as this love theme gets played on car horns, I think that this tune that you hear at the very beginning of the movie on the solo trumpet that then becomes the Godfather Waltz, obviously you hear it all throughout the movie, I think that's the real main nugget here. It's such a great melody, and there's a little quote here from Rhoda about Coppola's instructions to him about it. He said, He told me to adapt myself to the film's various situations and to compose a music which could constantly recall the origins of the protagonists, who came mostly from southern Italy and Sicily in particular. Coppola insisted that such music had to be embedded with Mediterranean, almost Arabic melodies, evoking a feeling of nostalgia for the ancient origins of these people who later migrated to America. I think it's really interesting to hear him say that he wanted to have Arabic influence in there as well. You know, the kind of ancient intermingling of Northern African and Southern Italian cultures is really important. And this tune, it sounds a little Semitic. Yeah, absolutely. It has that minor mode quality yeah. to it. And here, I don't think he's being ethnographically specific at all. He's just trying to evoke the mystery of the countryside, the mystery of the South, and maybe of Africa, maybe of the Middle East, something like that. It's some kind of ancient cycles are kind of the underlying theme. The idea of cycles, he said, inspired him to make this into a waltz. You know, you just hear the theme on the trumpet at the beginning. It sounds maybe like a call to prayer. It's a little bit out of time. It's not really clear what the rhythm is, but then he snaps it into a rhythm when Don Corleone dances with his daughter, and that becomes the Godfather waltz that you hear a bunch of other times. So it's a waltz tune. One, two, three, one, two, three, which, you know, we've said in the past that things in three time have this kind of spinning, flowing feel to them. So yeah, the idea of a continuing cycle is very resonant there. Yeah, in another Rota quote we've got, he describes the waltz as a leitmotif signifying a recurring cycle devoid of closure. Yeah. I do think that that is really, really at the core of why these movies are compelling. 
they have a sense of tragedy that I think goes deeper than a lot of other contemporary dramas do because uh-huh. it is able to get across this idea of these unstoppable cycles that are drawing them along. Yeah, I want to call out what I think is my favorite musical moment in the movie, my favorite moment in the score, which is at the end of the movie. So Michael has carried out all these murders to consolidate his power and take care of all family business. And he goes to Carlo's house, Connie's husband, the one that we saw getting married in the beginning of the movie, and says, you have to enter for a Santino because he uh, helped set up Sonny getting shot. So he's going to kill this guy. You know, it's part of cleaning up all the loose ends. He's got to kill his sister's husband. He chooses to, John. Yeah. He didn't have to. There you go. All right. Well, he feels like he has to. That's right. He goes, and I never quite understood the lengths that they go to to convince people that they're not about to be killed when they're about to be killed. Like, why do they need to make Polly drive around all those errands in the car to lull them into a false sense of security? Why don't they, if they're going to shoot him, they can just shoot him, right? It's very compelling to the audience to worry. That's true, it is. And so anyway, he goes through this whole song and dance with Carlo. He says explicitly, I'm not going to kill you. Do you think I would make my sister a widow? I'm sending you to Las Vegas. Here's a plane ticket, he says. <laughs> they actually buy him a plane ticket as part of this charade? <laughs> yeah, one of them's probably going to use it. That's a good point. To get to part two. <laughs> well, were, were plane tickets transferable then? That's a great question, John. Thank you very much. It's an important question. It's an important question. I just wanted to know if that was a real plane ticket. Like, did they actually buy him a plane ticket? Here is your plane ticket to go to Nevada, even though we're about to kill you. It probably costs less for them to buy a real plane ticket than it does to forge a plane ticket. <laughs> Or they just put a piece of paper in an envelope and, you know, if he, like, starts to look at it funny, they can just kill him. All right, anyway, so sure enough, they pretend like they're driving him to the airport and then he gets strangled. Hello, Carlo. And Michael and his guys are standing around watching this happen with stone faces. They just watched this murder occur. And now, as though to answer the question, how could you do this? What kind of a person can stand there with that blank look on his face while this awful thing happens? The trumpet shows up and shows you. It's this weight of history. It's this call to prayer. This is how things are. This is how we do business. It's inevitable. And the pathos that's bound up in that trumpet, it's the same thing. I think it's the same recording of the same trumpet that we heard over the opening credits. Yeah, yeah. But just the weight of its entrance there gets me every time. Yeah, and it brilliantly ties into everything that's evoked by a father dancing with his daughter at a wedding. Like, Mm -hmm. from one generation on to the next, you know, who are we but we're bobbing on the waves of time and there's only, we each just serve our part and then hand on the baton to the next generation, blah, blah, blah. Uh Uh-huh. I think the other super powerful playing of the same music, the same melody, in a different treatment of it, this is also a moment that lands with such weight. And it's when the father and the son are talking, the last conversation that we see them have. It's this conversation about really what it means to be the godfather. What's the matter? What's bothering you? And we hear the waltz, and it sneaks in quietly under this great, great conversation. I told you I can handle it. I'll handle it. And here is where I feel like, yeah, in addition to this bobbing on the waves of time, inevitable cycles of drama and tragedy feeling that the melody has, 
this is where Nina wrote his kind of circus music background, I think finds its best placement in the movie. We hear the kind of the B section of the waltz, the answering phrase. That thing? Yeah. As Marlon Brown is talking about dancing on the strings of the Pets and Avante, the big shots. And I refused to be a fool. Dancing on the string held by all those big shots. I don't apologize, that's my life, but I thought that... But when it was your time that... That you would be the one to hold the strings. Which is an allusion to the famous cover of the book, which was the marionette holder. Yeah, exactly. The idea of pulling the strings and being on the ends of strings that pull, and being a puppet, being a marionette. The circusy, the kind of carnival feeling here that contrasts with the solemnity of this conversation at the end of this guy's life. We'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. That resonance also really gets me. Yeah. The movie's all about power in a very obvious, direct way, but it's also about the underlying powerlessness of these people who are (laughs) sort of doomed to repeat things. Oddly enough, I think my favorite appearance of the Godfather theme in the movie is the most unassuming one that is sort of the most significant when Michael comes back from his time in Sicily. Mm -hmm. Now, sort of a a mystery to us. We don't know exactly what's in his interior, but you get the impression he has made some kind of decision. No more feelings, just family business from here on out. And he goes to Kay, Diane Keaton, his girlfriend from before, and says, okay, now you're going to marry me. And she's trying to get a handle on, like, who is this person who has clearly changed and it doesn't seem like it's for the better. It's good to see you, Kay. They're walking down the street and she's saying, I thought you wanted to, you know, not have anything to do with the family business. And he's saying as though it's the most reasonable thing. Like, I'm working for my father now, Kay. And you hear just the quiet little Godfather tune, never been played for Michael before. Yeah, that's a good point. And now it's just smooth like background him, music. I thought you weren't going to become a man like your father. That's what you told me. My father's no different than any other powerful man. Because this is how things are, and, you know, how can you fight it? That's the thing about that tune. Like, yeah. How can you fight it? Who's going to resist it? It's never going to turn a different corner. It's just going to keep going. (laughs) Uh, It's actually not true, though, that we haven't heard it played from Michael before, though. When he's in the hospital, which is kind of the sequence that really convinces him to be with his father. In fact, he says the words, I'm with you now. That's right. To Marlon Brando lying on the hospital gurney. I'm with you now. I'm with you. And at that moment, we also hear this waltz. Okay, but Marlon is on screen at that point, so okay. you know, it's not explicit in the way that it is later. It's not only for Michael. Good point. But it is for the two of them together. And also that cue that I'm talking about where he's with Kay, what are we, like an hour and a half into the movie at that point? More than that? Something like that. We're quite a ways into the movie. I feel like that's where the rota voice really kicks in for me when we start to hear these descending fifths. You know the thing I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that theme convey to you? Or what is that piece of material? It's not really a theme, but it is a recurring piece of material a couple times in this movie, many times in part two. Yeah. 
I'm tempted to remember it more from its use in part two, where it has this kind of uneasiness of the machinations of the switching allegiances and it's kind of a mystery theme. I guess maybe this is just my personal association, but that's fun too for podcasts. So you tell me. <laughs> to me, whenever I hear that, it feels like it's the sound of like Michael's soul decaying or of like the Ooh. potential for goodness kind of falling. Yeah, ebbing away. What it's saying is kind of like wheels are in motion. I think in one of our previous conversations, you said you can hear the gears turning. You know, as the movie goes along, Rota starts to show up with the message, gears are turning, things are in motion, and they're big gears that slowly, slowly crush these characters. Pretty much all of what the music is trying to get across is a perspective bigger than the characters' perspectives. Hmm. How long have you been back? I've been back a year. And I think he does a just a fantastic long job of keeping that perspective in view. There's actually this wonderful quote from Rota that we have that I want to read here. This comes from uh, some material from his personal notebooks that's been published. And these are his notes to himself about how he wanted to deal with a scene in part two. And the specific scene it refers to doesn't matter. It's actually a scene that got cut. But uh, in this quote, he says that this scene should have a sustained music background, very mysterious, like a child who says something and it is the truth. Hmm. I just feel like that's such a beautiful description of what he takes the role of the music to be. The idea of a child kind of seeing deeper than the adults are able to see and yeah. just uttering something and grounding you. Yeah, that resonates with, I think, some of our past discussions when we've talked about when music is really penetrating and really trenchant about what the movie has to say, that the music can't lie to you. You know, the music has to be an authority. And yeah, that you're right. That's such a lovely way to express the insight it can have. Yeah, not only can it not lie to you, but what he's describing is music that stops you from lying to yourself, that makes it harder Ooh. to be in denial of certain things that are true. So I think it's a beautiful image, and I also just think it's easier said than done. <laughs> you know, Coppola might have had in mind that the way this story needs to be told is as a story about forces bigger than any of the characters. And it seems that like an obvious thing to say, well, yeah, music's a great thing to do that, so you just write some themes that do it. But remember when we were talking about Out of Africa? Sure. It seems clear that in Out of Africa, too, they said, well, there's going to be specific things that the characters are doing and thinking about, but we really want to keep the audience's heart in touch with bigger, more existential, sweeping questions. And so uh, a nice love theme will do that for us. And we had a whole conversation about how Eh, I don't know. <laughs> and here I think it's like, it makes the movie completely land that way for everyone. I think that's why people love the movie ultimately. And I think it's just because this composer he's really sensitive to what that dramaturgical goal is he's not just slopping some stuff on there he really watches <laughs> each scene you know what do we need here what uh -huh. unspoken thing needs to be resonating in the air here uh, yes agreed absolutely i'm glad you brought up out of africa though because i think another important distinction <laughs> between this movie and out of africa hmm? <laughs> can you guess what it is is that stuff happens in this movie stuff happens in this movie i think 
the raw material that Roto was working with, the movie that was given to him, it's, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, <laughs> right. how dare we even say out of Africa in the same sentence? And I think out of Africa very much wanted to be the godfather. It very much wanted to have the confidence and the sincerity of the godfather. And I think it tried to do that, as I complained about in that episode, by playing a lot of it with no music. Mm -hmm. I listed off a whole bunch of stuff that happens in Out of Africa for which there is no music. And then I said that this theme, yeah, it's nice for the flying sequence, but it didn't really get tied to the emotional import of the movie by being you know, used in some of these other spots where there was just silence instead. Let me get back to the perhaps hot take that I had at the beginning about how this was a unmusical movie. You're absolutely right to point out the actual diegetic significance of music within the movie for the characters and the traditions, and that's super well done. But what I was talking about when I said the movie is unmusical is so much of the action is left to play out in silence. We just look at it happen. And because the writing is so good and the acting is so good and the overall story architecture is so good, it does take on this sense of realism and sincerity. If you have been listening along thinking, I love The Godfather, when are they going to talk about this thing that happens in the movie? I dare you to come up with three things that happen in The Godfather. You can think of dozens of things that happen in The Godfather. Come up with three of them for which there is original score music playing. I don't know if you can. Like, you know, what are some famous moments in The Godfather? The opening speech, I believe in America. I believe in America. America has made my fortune. This three-minute-long camera zoom out. It takes place totally in silence. Mm -hmm. The kind of answering zoom in on Michael as he's sitting there, you know, he's hatching the plan how he's going to kill Salazzo and McCloskey. They're not going to expect it from me. I'll kill him. This is a crucial moment for his character, and the camera is slowly, slowly pushing in on him. Boy, I would be tempted to write music for that. You know, play some Michael's theme. Play something. There's nothing. Then I'll kill them both. Then the whole sequence when he actually does do that. The whole sequence in the restaurant, there's no music. The whole, everything that happens between Carlo and Connie and Sonny that leads up to Sonny getting shot. I could go on and on. So many of the super memorable things that happen in this movie get carried along without any music. And I don't mean this to be a count against the movie or even really against its score. I just think it's remarkable that, you know, this is the number five score on the AFI's list. And I just think it's interesting that the music is not asked to do so many things that you might think it would be asked to do in other movies. I mean, what, what do you think? Do you disagree? I, I agree, but I disagree with the implication that its role can't be truly essential and not just in a kind of, well, you know, we needed to have a couple of chocolate chips to make a chocolate chip cookie, so there's three. It is a, it's like, <laughs> it's a great image, right? It's a great, great metaphor. <laughs> it's a foundational role. I mean, here's what comes to mind for me. Okay, what is maybe the most intensely memorable scene in the movie is when he shoots Salazzo McClosky and Yeah. And there's no music. There's no music. And then at the end of the scene, not only is there music, but there's music that asserts 
something about its meaning by being explicitly operatic yeah. in a way that almost no other movie score would ever dare to do. Sure. And this is an enormous statement of Michael's theme, which we haven't touched on as much as some of the other melodies, but it's a super important melody. It's all throughout this movie and, of course, part two as well. Michael's theme, to me, is the one that has the most resistance in it. It's got mm. the most tension in this augmented note. You know, da 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 da. That note. That's tension right now. That's someone struggling a little bit right now. Mm-hmm. Michael's trajectory is obviously the thing that we're the most invested in. The tragedy of like, are you sure you want to do that, Michael? Are you sure you couldn't? That comes barging out at the end of this scene. It's tense, tense, tense. He shoots them. It's still sort of unrelieved tension because now what? And then as soon as he's off screen, the music comes in and says, you know what kind of scene you just saw? This is something like out of an Italian opera. Mm -hmm. In his notebook for the scene, uh, the climax of the Robert De Niro arc in part two, where he goes back to Sicily and kills the man who killed his mother and father, Rota wrote La Commedia e Finita, in his notes, which mm. is a reference to the finale of I Pagliacci, the famous tragic clown who kills his wife opera that I think we actually played briefly a long time ago when I was talking about Ennio Morricone. <laughs> when you sang it, I remember your memorable performance. Right. So this is the last thing. The, you know, the clown says the comedy is finished, and then there's this orchestral hit. La And that is the tradition and maybe even the moment that this moment with Michael alludes to, that he was thinking of it in part two as sort of proof that it was on his mind in relation to The Godfather may Mm -hmm. have been on his mind when he wrote this. It's like it's saying what opera says, which is this has archetypal significance. This is not just one clown. This is not just, you know, Luciano Pavarotti's problem. (laughs) This is on an epic scale. You know, it's general, as in recent conversations we've been saying. It should shake you because it, touches you i think i read that coppola had originally intended the movie actually to have an intermission to have an act break in the middle of it and i think this was meant to be the end of act one (laughs) i think that also contributes to the enormous heavy finality of what rota wrote for it here it's such a curtain drop moment yeah exactly it sounds like the curtain is dropping and then act two was to start with the montage of the headlines about the mob war right the newspaper headlines spinning into frame which with Carmine Coppola playing the piano on screen that is first of all is Carmine Coppola himself is playing the piano that's Francis Ford Coppola's father on screen and then I also read that this little montage sequence oh edited by George Lucas I read is that what you're gonna say yeah his buddy George uh, uncredited assembled this whole montage with the spinning newspapers and everything how about that you know the juxtaposition between the high tragic opera and the out of tune piano kind of gives a sense of scope of range of the movie yeah well it was originally intended to not be a juxtaposition but yeah you know serendipity counts Mm -hmm. there's a lot that kind of fell into place in the right way for this movie and you're absolutely right the juxtaposition that wound up resulting from there not being an intermission is very effective but it's just back to your bigger point about 
boy, the music really only does a few things and there actually isn't that much music in it. To me, a moment like that, and pretty much every moment where the music steps in, the music is putting a frame around this action that mm. without it, you really do have a movie that's you know about how cool it is when mob guys kill each other. It's what makes the movie seem like a rich meal that you can go back to again and again because character questions or could Michael have done anything else? Did he have a choice? These things seem potent because that music is there. Pulling the camera back, uh, essentially. Pulling the musical camera back. You liked when I said it before, so I'm saying it again. <laughs> and I think that's just something that Rota is uniquely good at because he understands how even the wedding band can kind of be secretly the voice of eternity or whatever. Mm -hmm. Even the mandolin outside the window like, is secretly the voice of the tragic opera you're in. He somehow makes that sing. And, yeah, and John Barry didn't. But you said a, a great thing about the difference between this and Out of Africa. Thank you. Which is that if you're going to make something have epic sweep to it, that has to be in contrast to a present local action. If you're just saying the words epic sweep over and over again, it doesn't have... <laughs> epic sweep. Did I say that? That's what was implied. You said some stuff happens in this movie and that's why the grand scale gestures work. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, if you're going to like gather everything up into your arms and show that it's all part of one thing, there have to be things that you're gathering up. <laughs> that gathering <laughs> motion has to grab onto some real objects. Everything you said about how lovely and piquant and powerful Michael's theme is, yeah. I absolutely agree with. It sounds terrific. But, uh, you know, since we're here doing this thing we're doing, I thought we should maybe just play this little bit of music from another Fellini movie. Uh-oh. E Clowns. This kind of weirdo movie that Fellini made about circus clowns. Yeah, he had a thing for circus clowns. He did. And, uh, you know, Rhoda really uh, was the perfect guy to go along with him on that. There's a, like, funeral sequence in this clown act, mm -hmm. and it gets this music. Egli non è più. Per fortuna rimango io. Piangete, fratelli, se volete. It turns a different way. It goes down. It goes up before it goes back down. Instead of Michael's theme, which jumps up and then comes back down. But, you know, it's got the same moves. It's got that crucial descending line. And then it jumps up and plays the same thing up a fourth. You know. It was there. Like, he's allowed. I, I don't know what exactly I want to make out of this. He's allowed. He is allowed. And it also is worth pointing out that he did that. Also, you asked earlier, I feel like this needs to be addressed because I kind of had the sense of some of our listeners shouting it at us. Oh. You said, name some famous things that happen in The Godfather <laughs> that have music. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. There is one that has music. <laughs> the Hollywood producer who won't let Johnny Fontaine be in his movie uh -huh. wakes up one morning and his prize horse's head is in his bed. I don't know if you remember that scene, but it's something that happens in The Godfather. Yeah, I told you you had to come up with three of them. There's that. There's the baptism sequence at the end. Oh, that's right, too. We got to talk about that, too. But those are the ones that I thought people would And, you know, I think the what we were just talking about, you know, whether the restaurant shooting scene has music in it, it sort of depends how you define it. Hmm. It definitely has a musical exclamation point on it. You know, the sound design that happens in that restaurant scene is brilliant and absolutely is doing the job that you might want music to do. When Michael comes out of the bathroom and you see on his face the terror and the anxiety of what he is about to do, and we hear the whining screech of an elevated subway car going by outside the restaurant. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's getting it done, for sure.
Right, the editor is basically serving as composer there. And in a sense, actually, that connects to the horse's head sequence. There is music, and it's Nino Rota's music, but it has been manipulated by the editor, Walter Murch. Yeah. It is original Rota music, but it's interesting, this sort of combined perspective that it creates, because Rota's idea, I think, was, you know, in that quote I read earlier, that the murders would occur to the notes of a leitmotif signifying a recurring cycle. I think his idea was, here comes the first murder we're going to see on screen, and you'll hear this mysterious waltz from the depths of time. This is an ancient, horrible mm. tradition. The Sicilian thing that's been going on for 2,000 years, as Diane Keaton says in part two. <laughs> but instead, what you hear is a kind of distorted nightmare waking up collage that Walter Murch overlapped the parts of it. It sounds like this crazy carnival nightmare thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of hard to conceive of the scene, actually, without that weird overlapping dissonance of this, yeah, this collage that Rhoda did not do. <laughs> I'm tempted to wonder, like, what do you think about that? I don't think I would like that if an editor did that to my music. It's a very not Rota thing to do. I mean, other composers might have written it that way. Exactly. And I can't imagine him doing it that way. And it's interesting, again, for the point I was making a little while ago about when in the movie you start to get this sense of cyclical inevitability. It would have been much earlier if they had played it that way. It would have played the action a different way from earlier on. Unfortunately, we don't have the uncollaged version of that because we don't usually talk about this, and I'll just say it quickly, but I want to toss it out there. It is ridiculous that you can't get a real soundtrack to this movie, The Godfather. (laughs) Everyone loves this soundtrack. All you can get is the thing that was put out in 1972, which is cheesy and terrible in the way that (laughs) things in 1972 were. Like, you can't even listen to the love theme on this soundtrack without these ridiculous choral sweeteners that they put on. It just makes it sound like easy listening music. And hardly any of the score is on there. You know, the way it's gone generally is that that's how soundtracks used to be. Some recording company executive would throw something together that they thought would uh, meet the market. And then that's all you get from a soundtrack. And in the last, you know, 30 years, there has been this movement among film score nerds to get the real soundtracks released. And everything and its brother has had the soundtrack put out. And The Godfather has not? It's insane to me. Hear, hear. Okay, that's my rant. Write your congressman. Yeah, I suspect there might be some kind of rights issue that is blocking it, because surely the idea that that thing would sell is self-apparent. But yeah, get your rights act together, people. Uh, we want to hear that album. Hey, let me just quickly ask you, uh, you know, they uh, they shoot Marlon Brando in the street after he's buying oranges. They try to kill him, right? Yeah, I did know that. Thanks for warning me about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, no music. No music happened happens during this important assassination attempt. Oh, well, now, John, someone is practicing trumpet on the street, which you might say is relevant to the trumpet theme that you've been... Fair enough. But, you know, it's source music. But source music, yeah. It stops when the gunmen come and shoot him. Mm-hmm. Correct. But anyway, they shoot him in the back like five or six times, right? Full in the back. Yeah, they shoot him a few times. Yeah, but, like, they didn't miss, and he survives, surprising. And then James Caan, wearing the most squibs that anyone has ever worn, gets gunned down by dozens of machine guns in his car on the causeway. And He dies. And he dies, but not before he's already taken dozens and dozens of bullets 
and he still is able to crawl out of the car and like stand up and go ah I don't I guess my question is were bullets just not as good then pretty gory question thanks well let's let's move on to the last bunch of shootings that we see in the movie yes yes let's talk about the baptism yeah so this is the sequence where super memorably michael is in the church getting baptized along with his newborn nephew it is intercut brilliantly with all of the family business being taken care of all the heads of the other five families being murdered by various of michael's men i want to say andy Mm mm-hmm I think there might be something to the double meaning of the word godfather here. Hmm. You know, because he's becoming the godfather to the baby, and then he's also becoming the godfather of killing people. <laughs> Has anybody ever observed this? I think there might be something to it. I get what you're getting at here. Yeah. There's sort of like a parallelism between the religious context and the criminal context. I just can't imagine anybody's ever observed this before. But like you said, serendipity counts. Yeah. Somebody should point that out to Coppola. I wonder if anybody ever has. I don't know. Uh, what do you think of this sequence? There's this organ music playing all through it. You know, it's set up at the beginning of the scene like it's the music that's playing on the organ in the church where the baptism is happening. Mm-hmm. It probably is. It probably is. But then it twists and turns and starts and stops along with all the killings that we see. It does. It never gets quite to the place of really saying, well, now I'm just score. Yeah. They could have gone a direction where it filled out and the orchestra came in and it became very explicitly score, and it doesn't do that at all. It remains the church organ. What's in the movie, some of it is by Bach. It's actual Bach. And you can sort of actually hear at one point that the one organ's kind of suddenly seems like they moved the stops around or maybe it's just a completely different organ. Yeah, so there's this one rising organ flourish scale that is Rhoda's thing that is kind of like an imitation of a Thing, and that's right before Clemenza shoots the guy in the elevator. Uh-huh. And then it changes to this other organ before Mulgreen gets shot. Yeah, and when it changes there, it's switching to an actual excerpt from a yeah. piece by Bach. The organ prelude in D. And all his works. And I think what happened here is that it had been tempted with a collage of a bunch of different organ pieces, and then they told Rota to write something that matched all of that, and he wrote something based on material from the movie, from the Godfather waltz theme, and then they decided, no, to keep it closer to this pre-existing temp music. When I was watching this, I thought, if he had gotten his way, it's just in his character, he would have made the organ be playing the tunes from the movie. You know, the fact that they kind of pulled Rota away from his instincts, which are to score thematically, shows that that was the relationship on this movie. On the second movie, when they realized just how important his music was, yeah. they let him do what he wants, and sure enough, when you see Michael's son taking communion... Uh, yeah, the organ is playing the Godfather theme. I thought, mm-hmm. yep, that is the way Nina Rota thinks. Here's what I have to say about this scene. I've seen this movie a number of times. I hadn't seen it recently, and I have a distorted impression of that scene in my head where I thought of it as this thing that I kind of hate where there's like religious music and it's awe-inspiring and then there's horrible violence at the same time and they play one against the other and you feel like, whoa, 
whoa, man, it's epic. And it doesn't mean anything. And it, to me, feels... Oh, you mean like the mission? I'm thinking of like Batman movies. This happens in a lot. <laughs> you okay. know, like in comic book movies where there will be a chorus and they will be singing a requiem in quotes and like three sets of quotes a requiem. It's usually not even real <laughs> Latin. But it's just like the church choir is singing. So you know this is epic, dude. It happens so often in movies today. The <laughs> religious take is just like one of the standard buttons you press on your computer for yeah, I know what you mean. scenes. And I had in my head, until this past couple of weeks, this idea that like, it all goes back to that scene in The Godfather. If only they hadn't done that thing with the baptism, we wouldn't be in this situation today. Golly. But when I sat down and watched it and really paid attention to what the music was doing, the organ is not used that way. The music in that sequence is not trying to bull you over with the height of the cathedral and the greatness of God or whatever, and then linking that up to violence. It is actually making the juxtaposition a little bit uncomfortable, and it uses these shock chords that sound kind of like radio organ music that happen to be in Bach, but it sounds like a horror movie. It does not try to make an equation between spiritual awe and violence. It tries to link them up in what to me is a more responsible and dramatically meaningful way which is that these things probably shouldn't be equated and yet we mm -hmm. found this kind of secret passage through which they are and isn't that distressing uh yeah the whole power of that scene is the juxtaposition it's these things don't go together yeah these things have been forced together and doesn't that make you sad right but you just before brought up part two and how the music is treated differently in that sequel movie. Uh -huh. And I wanted to get back to that because what I'm saying about how the important dramatic stuff in part one, so much of it plays without music. I really feel like there's a marked difference between part one and part two in that way. In part two, there are many more examples of music coming into a scene and really telling us something about the interior life of the characters that we're looking at that is not otherwise on the screen. Here, let me give one quick example. So after the assassination attempt on Michael and his house in Lake Tahoe, the family is sitting together trying to make sense of things, and Kay shoots Michael this look. And right on that look, there's this heavy beating that comes in that punctuates that look. You know, her face is kind of blank and just, she's not saying anything, but the music is making a conspicuous entrance to tell the audience what is behind that blank, deadly stare. And then it goes on and it gets this kind of grim statement of Michael's theme on top of this heavy beating. And then uh, later on, uh, after he comes back from Cuba, it's winter in Lake Tahoe, and he's just kind of walking around. Michael is in front of his house, in front of his children's swing set. And again, we hear that same heavy beating that is characterizing the action in a way that is not otherwise represented on the screen. And these are moves, these are like entrances and appearances of music that the score really just doesn't make in the first movie. The music is really getting in there and, and making a statement. I think there's more examples of assertiveness by the music, of being an equal partner with the drama that the music gets to frame things and characterize things for you. I really felt it being held back from doing that 
in part one. Yeah. Relative, I think, to other scores that we've talked about and to other movies. It felt like a real exercise in restraint. I think that arises from some behind-the-scenes facts about the working relationship where I read that... Serendipity counts. You know, Rota wasn't thrilled about working on an American movie. He had Mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff going on in Italy. You know, the vast majority of his career is on Italian movies. Yeah. I think the AFI has to resort to this because it is an American movie and it's the American Film Institute, so that's why this is the one on the list. Not to say it's not a great score for a great movie, but they might well have picked Eight Eight and and a Half or Amarcord or La Strada or uh, Knights of Cabiria or... La Dolce Vita. All these great Italian scores that he wrote. But this is the American one he wrote. So that was a little out of character for him. And he was not sure he wanted to deal with the logistical complexities of that. And I read that he said he would only do this if, A, they could record it in Rome. And B, he did not have to deal with everything that came after the recording uh, having to do with you know, syncing it up, changing it, uh, making adjustments, that someone else would handle that. So there was just this plan, like we're going to have a lot of other music and then we're going to have a certain amount of Nino Rota music and it's going to have a certain degree of a role to play. And then I think after this movie was such a phenomenon and such a success and an artistic success, you know, the second movie just feels more committed to having a score from yes. both sides. Yeah, it really does. It's a real difference you can feel. Yeah, it's hard for us not to talk about part two while we're talking about part one because the movie is such a great organic sequel to the first and the music is a great organic sequel to the first. It uses mm-hmm. the same material. Comes up with some new material, the immigrant theme. That's right. So it feels like that's where this project went next. So to put The Godfather on the list is a little awkward for a couple of reasons there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we have to work with. I guess we're getting to the part here where we try to list rank it ourselves. Yeah, let's try to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be tough, I think. It's very tough. I don't feel great about that. I mean, I, I'm just feeling worse and worse about this segment every <laughs> time we come around. And I don't even know what I'm going to do. Do you have thoughts? What do you think we should do here? John? You don't even know what you're going to do at all? Do you have a, like a third? Which third of the list is going to I have a sense be? of approximately where, yeah. All right. Well, give me your approximate sense. I'll give you my approximate sense. All right. Well, last time I said, you know, Jaws and Robin Hood feel about match to me. And I just made a silly decision about which one went above. Mm-hmm. Right below that, I've got Chinatown, which is wonderful, but also sort of even smaller scale than this and how much music there is and how much presence it has in the movie but i think also even smaller scale as wonderful as that is even smaller scale in terms of what dramatic significance it brings i've been trying to get across in this conversation just how much spiritual dramatic context and framing this music brings to this movie i think it's really significant i i don't know i guess I guess I just talked myself into that it's just going to have to go below Jaws, which I put below Robin Hood. So it's and and still above Chinatown because it's more than that. I think that might be my choice because uh, I don't want to have any more thoughts about it. What do you think? <laughs> this is a great movie. I love this movie. Mm-hmm. This is great music. I love this music. If you want to put it way below where I just put it, that would be fine with me. I mean, this is sort of why I brought up Out of Africa in the first place, because I feel like there's a lot of things that scores have done in this series that we've gotten excited about that this yeah. just doesn't do. Yeah, it that's just writes a good tunes point. and lays them out there. I just think it does that with such acuity and effect that I'm willing to rank it very mm-hmm. highly. Thanks for articulating that well for me. Yeah, there's a lot that other scores on this list do that this doesn't do. 
It writes tunes. The tunes are wonderful. The tunes have this seminal, monumental feel to them that carries so much weight. And because they're associated with uh, filmmaking and performances that are so wonderful in their own right, they take on extra weight from that. So does this score belong on a list of the all-time greatest scores? Sure it does. Does it belong in the top five? I don't think it does. I don't think it belongs in the top five just because of what it's not getting done, which is so much. This movie is standing on its own so much of the time, so successfully, that I think I just have to count that against the score in terms of its placement on this list of scores. Yep. Also, I think a lot of the music, like we just said, that is sort of remembered as the Godfather music was more written for part two. Further, a lot of the music in this movie that is super important and effective was not written by Nino Rota, it was written by Carmine Coppola. I think that's a fair count against it for list-making purposes. And two of the really important themes in this score were lifted from previous things that he wrote, which, again, is fine. And at the end of the day, what's most important is that it really works here. But as I'm making this list of all-time great scores, I think I can dock it a couple points for that. Uh And further, there are many moments that were manufactured outside of Rhoda's control, like that horse head scene. The way it wound up in the finished movie, that nightmarish overlapping collage, Rhoda didn't do that. You can absolutely hear edit points in the score where one tune kind of awkwardly butts up against another, like when Michael is setting out to go on his mission to kill Salazzo and McCloskey. We hear Michael's theme, and then it kind of gets interrupted on the cut to him waiting to get picked up in front of Jack Dempsey's restaurant. And it goes into the same kind of tension music that we heard during the hospital scene. And that's not Rhoda's doing because, in fact, Rhoda wrote this whole other piece of music that didn't make it into the movie. Just to quickly touch on this, this piece of music that Rhoda originally wrote to be playing during the scene when Michael is picked up in the car. He gets in the car with Salazzo. McCloskey frisks him, and they're driving to Louis' restaurant in the Bronx. There's no music for that in the finished movie. I'm glad you came, Mike. It's absolutely part of the succession of just here's what it's like and it's so good that you don't need any help with it. But Rhoda wrote this kind of frenetic, almost silly sounding piece of music that it's hard to imagine going there that, yeah, got cut. But you got to keep an open mind when we talk. I mean, I hope you're not a hothead like your brother Sonny. You can't talk business with him. You do know what I He's a good kid. I think that a lot of what added up to the final film happened outside of Rhoda's influence, outside of his control, in the editing bay afterwards. Yeah, wrote some wonderful, wonderful tunes. And there are certainly plenty of places where they are wonderfully scored to picture, but there are also many places where they are just kind of tracked in. And I want to value things that are all the way written to picture, where every minute of the music is conceived of as part of a unified storytelling endeavor, where the composer is working hand-in-hand with the director and the rest of the filmmakers to tell a story. I think it's got to slip down on my list for those reasons, even though I love the music and, of course, it's an all-time great movie. (laughs) So... Where's it going to end up? Uh, After I said all that, I don't know. (laughs) 
You made me want to move it down too, as you started saying that. So I might move mine down. So don't be ashamed. Put it low. Put it wherever you want. It's not going to be low. It's not going to be low, but it's going to be lower than that. I think I'm going to put it underneath The Adventures of Robin Hood and above The Magnificent Seven on my list. Mm-hmm. So that it winds up being the ninth entry on my list so far. Are you going to move it? The honest truth is I made a tentative list of, you know, what's remaining to see if I was going to be embarrassed about my list. (laughs) I was like, if they all look like this, will I feel like an idiot at the end? (laughs) And on that list, I had put The Godfather lower. Okay. And then as I was watching it and thinking about it, I was like, yeah, but it's really doing a very important thing about this very big movie in a way that is sort of indisputable, incontestable. Mm -hmm. It just is. It's a monument. It absolutely gets across the feeling of it just is. So fine, I'll be the one who put it at number four. Why not? (laughs) Okay. Or five, whatever it is. You can change it. I can change it later. I can change it in the Deep Regrets episode that we'll be doing, episode 26. (laughs) The Deep Regrets episode. Okay, so you're leaving it under Jaws above Chinatown. Yeah, sure. (laughs) It feels a little high. It does feel a little high. All right. What do you think I should do, John? I, I think you should knock it down a couple spots. If you think it feels high, that's the right thing to do. Why don't you put it under To Kill a Mockingbird? Man, you know, it's just like I'm comparing, you know, like an apple and an orange and a pear and a quince and a, and a lychee. And a, oh, like, well, you know, in this movie, whenever you see an orange, people get killed. That's bad news. Watch out for those oranges. Yeah. So maybe don't compare it to an orange. <sighs> you know, like it's weird to put it below Chinatown. That feels odd. To me. No, it feels right to me. I think Chinatown's music got in there and made the story happen in a way that this doesn't. There's so much evidence in this movie that the story was going to happen just fine without any help from the music. That's what I say. I guess we differ a little bit on this because I think that this movie without the Rota music would have seemed smaller in a way that I think is really... Okay. That difference is crucial to the way it plays now. So, um, okay. That's a difference. It's a difference. It'll be reflected on our lists. Okay. Number five for you. Number nine for me. Look, you know, these are the list of the best. This goes on the list of the best. So Right. And just like a footnote for all of the people who are getting tattoos with my list. I'm (laughs) kind of bringing the Godfather Part 2 into my ranking here because I don't expect it to get a separate ranking. If you were going to tell me that for sure it was going to get a separate ranking, I might make more of a distinction in my mind than I'm making here. Okay. Fair enough. We're going to have to uh, figure out what to do with a movie that has notable sequels before too long. I see The Godfather Part Two as much more like a limb uh, or a twin sibling of The Godfather Part One than any of the sequels of the movie you're referring to. Oh, I agree. Let's save that for then and let's stop beating around the bush about what is coming up on the list. The next thing up on the list is the number four score, and that is return of our friend Bernard Herrmann with his score for Psycho. That's right, John. You know, the score for Psycho has a lot to do with us doing this podcast in the first place. That's right. We're doing this because I listened to you on another podcast talking about Psycho, and now I'm going to listen to you on my podcast talking about Psycho, (laughs) which is the plan all along. That'll show them. All right, well, I'm very excited to talk with you about the score to Psycho on our podcast. That's right. We've earned it. All right, on your podcast, fine. No, 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 no. Of course it's ours. <laughs> I hope everyone out there in podcast land, or the opposite, whatever podcast land broadcasts to, audience land, I hope they all <laughs> appreciate the even-handedness we have where we trade off who says welcome at the beginning of each episode. That is true equal ownership. I hope everyone out there like just admires us and the wisdom of that. 
Well, that is some real inside baseball stuff to point out. If you as a listener had noticed that we trade off the order of who says what in our little formulaic intro at the top of the episode, uh, thank you very, very much for paying (laughs) close attention. I I got to start this one, right? Because it was an even episode. I think of this as a John episode then. Yeah. Because he's the one who says hello and welcome. It's on him. He welcomed you. That's true. And I was the special guest. Anyway, from our podcast here in podcast. Next time, I'll be talking to you about Psycho, and my (laughs) guest will be your podcast friend, John. Well, from these two podcast friends to you, all of our podcast friends, thank you for listening. Please talk back to us on Twitter at Square Settlers, write us a review on iTunes, all that good stuff, and uh, come back again. I hope you enjoy your time in audience land. (laughs) Come back again. Join us in podcast land. Uh, We'll be here. We always are. See you then.